Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, today I'm speaking with Zainab Tufekshi. Zainab is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina and an opinion writer for the New York Times and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. She has a background in computer science, but she's since become a sociologist and has focused on the interaction between digital technology, artificial intelligence, and changes in society. And she was one of the earliest people to sound the alarm about the COVID pandemic, and as a non-medical professional, was one of the first people to point out that the CDC and the WHO were making obvious errors in their messaging around wearing masks in particular. But she's published a lot during the pandemic and has also been very incisive about political polarization and the machinations of Trump. She has an intellectual toolkit that seems really perfectly designed for the moment we're living in. And in this episode, we cover many intersecting issues here related to the problems of misinformation and groupthink. We discuss the COVID-19 pandemic, the early failures of journalists and public health professionals to make sense of it, the sociology of mask wearing, the problem of correcting institutional errors, COVID as a dress rehearsal for something far worse, asymmetric information warfare, the failures of messaging around vaccines, the paradox of scientific authority, the power of incentives, the prospects of reforming social media, and other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you Zainab Tufekshi. I am here with Zainab Tufekshi. Zainab, thanks for joining me again. Thank you for inviting me. So, Zainab, you, when I think of people who have really hit their stride during the, um, the last year of global derangement, you are, if not at the top of the list, I mean, I, I can't think of anyone who's higher on the list than you are. I mean, you, you're somebody who has um, an amazingly relevant collection of talents and interests. You've just been this incredibly prescient student of all of these trends that are now intersecting. I mean, we have all of these trends of conspiracy thinking and social contagion and misinformation and all of it being brought to scale by social media. And then this is now coincided with a global health crisis wherein you have become essentially a, a, an amateur epidemiologist among many, but you've distinguished yourself as someone who really has produced good information uh, and, and, and a, where you've been contrarian, it's been extraordinarily useful. It's, it's really great to see. I mean, we, you, you and I had a great conversation last time, but you know, while all of, the, all of these problems were humming along, you know, the last 12 months has really been the apotheosis of everything you've been worrying about. So congratulations on being a, a woman who's, who's met the moment. Well, I am not sure. Thank you so much. But I'm not sure it's congratulations as much as, oh, you know, this is not a great moment. But uh, yeah, it's kind of like pretty much everything I've ever been interested in has kind of merged into a pandemic year. So here we are. Mm. So how would you, how do you describe your career or your, your intellectual and academic perch? in general now? 
So that's, I mean, obviously, as we've discussed before, the thing I study professionally as an academic is the public sphere, misinformation, digital technologies, how they all interact. In fact, just a couple days ago was the first year anniversary of a tweet I had sent in January, I think 26th or 27th, where I said, ooh, you know, I essentially was realizing a pandemic was coming. And I said, this is going to take place under conditions of, you know, well-oiled machines of misinformation. What a challenge. And I was just sort of looking at it and thinking, yep, that's what happened. It's been a year like that. So that's what I professionally study and what I have written on. So the pandemic side is that I, I teach, I used to teach more introduction to sociology and that kind of classes. And one of the things I try to do a lot with both my students and my own writing I've written about this before, is to try to talk about interdependent systems, complex systems, risk in sort of places where things are kind of interacting with another, like there's a technical component, there's a network component, there's a sociological component. And one of the best examples I had found to try to teach this stuff and to write about and to read about had been pandemics. So mm. uh, I had, I mean, because they're a perfect example of so many things, right? If you want to explain globalization, interconnectedness of the planet, uh, if you want to explain how things like justice and logistics and sort of the technical scientific side, you know, what kind of a pathogen did you get matter and how exponential growth occurs and all those things, I would teach about SARS. I would explain mm. SARS, I would explain the virus, I would explain how we almost had a pandemic. I would explain how we got away from having it because the infectious period coincided with having a fever. So we could put a fever gun to people's heads and say, okay, now you're infectious and trying to find a way to isolate them. So I, I wasn't like completely new to the topic. But as you point out, of course, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, none of those things. But I had a, a lot of familiarity because I use these things to teach about and just very deep personal interest because they're such an interesting, regular human phenomenon. And they kind of have every layer of complexity you want. You know, you have the science and the virology, you have the human behavior. Plus, there's a lot of things that are kind of misunderstood in the fictional versions of it, like the movie Contagion or Outbreak, all mm. of those. I, I, it was a very good topic for me for years. So when in January, oh, there was, there's one more twist. I was researching in Hong Kong pretty much all of 2019. I was going back and forth. I was studying the social movement there because, you know, it's an interesting sort of question to think about. We have our own particular digital version here. China has its own and Hong Kong was an interface and there's a social movement. So when the pandemic hit, I was closely connected to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, of course, had been through SARS and had lost a lot of people. So they were on guard. Plus, they're close to you know, mainland China. So they kind of were very quick to interpret the news coming out of China. Like they immediately knew what was up, uh, like Taiwan, they had experience. So I had the sort of early window into it in January. And since I study sort of authoritarian governments and things like that, too. So as soon as like mid-January, end of January, when 
we started seeing cases outside of China that had not been to the Wuhan seafood market. There was a lady in Thailand, I think January 14th, she'd never been to the Wuhan market. And you kind of knew, yeah, you know what, this is sustained human to human trans uh, transmission. You kind of mm. were seeing the Taiwan and Hong Kong. They, the, those people, they're close to the ground. They were masking up and getting ready. And then on January 20th, when China shut down Wuhan, like with authoritarians, you want to sort of look at what they do, not what they say. And you're like, this is big. And then we started seeing the early news that this was spreading before people were symptomatic. And I knew like at the end of January, I was completely certain we were going to get hit and it was going to be a, some sort of pandemic. We didn't really know how bad. And I had like started, you know, changing my own schedule and travel. So that's kind of how it started for me. And at in January, to be honest, my first concern was I wanted to go back to Hong Kong. So I remember like Jan the first week of January, I started buying masks uh, because I was already seeing like January 7th, I was already ordering masks because I knew like we were seeing all this. You see viral pneumonia, unexplained viral pneumonia in China, and you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? And my first concern was I wanted to go back and do more research. And I mm. thought, you know what? I probably won't be able to go back because Hong Kong will be badly hit because they're so close to Wuhan. A year later, <laughs> little did I know they would not take me back because I'm from a country that's just mismanaged it so badly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, You're from but, a banana republic. Uh, correct. So I can't go back, not because they're badly hit, but because they're doing, <laughs> they're, they're doing so much better than us. So I still can't go back. So that was kind of how January happened for me. And then mm -hmm. I spent February in this out-of-body experience, I like to call it, when, like, if you knew anything about infectious diseases or pandemics, and if you're following the news, you knew we were going to get hit. And also, like, before January 20th, China, the government was not telling the truth. But after that, they unmuzzled their scientists, and there was this outpouring of information. And I think at that point, partly because they knew like this was terrible and a pandemic is bad for them, too, because it's their early cover up that contributed to this. And so they were actually giving us a lot of information. So you could kind of learn about, you know, the pre-symptomatic transmission, all of those things. And plus, you know, the Chinese scientists, they could start communicating and they were like warning us. And then you were seeing all the papers and you, Taiwan was giving us information. You know, you were getting information from Hong Kong, other places. HKU, the, the medical school there is excellent. So I, I was sure we were going to get hit. We were seeing Wuhan. We started seeing what was happening in Italy. And then I would look at the news. <laughs> I would look at newspapers. Like, and I don't mm. mean just the administration. Like the administration's failings are so obvious and so in front of everybody's face that I think like almost doesn't bear repeating they were terrible but also in February I was reading like op-eds and pieces in outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and other places that had titles like beware of the pandemic panic kind of implying the mm. panic over pandemic was the problem I read an op-ed or a piece in the Washington Post saying the Asians were just superstitious. That's why they wore masks. <laughs> and this was somebody like an academic. This wasn't some random person. I, I read 
a Bloomberg piece saying that it was our irrational brain that was making us think about the pandemic. And I'm just sort of looking and thinking, you realize we have to do this thing called flatten the curve, our hospitals are about to get hit. And you're telling us not to panic, that masks are irrational and there's nothing to do and don't fear. There was an op-ed in the New York Times from somebody who's like a travel agent saying, <laughs> don't demonize travel. It's okay to go to China. I'm like, what are these people? <laughs> just sort of like, what planet are these people on? We're about like, you feel that tsunami coming at you and you're like, we got to get to high ground and everybody's acting like you're crazy. That's how I lived through February. And I wasn't planning to write anything about the pandemic because I, you know, I would have written about the misinformation part. I would have done all of that. But mm. I was seeing people around me plan conferences, like try to, they were asking like on local Facebook groups, they'd be like, my elderly parents want to go on this cruise ship and we're hearing about this <laughs> pandemic. Should they go? And I would be like, no, they should not go. Because we already see the age data, like this is not good. This is they should not. And they would send me this New York Times or Washington Post article saying you're just panicking. They would tell me to worry about the flu. I'm like, yes, yes, please do get your flu shot, but you don't understand. We have a novel coronavirus. You gotta stop. You gotta get ready. You gotta start getting ready to maybe stay home a little bit. You know, fill your prescription medication. So I couldn't find an article to send to these people. So I wrote one like that's mm. literally how I, I just like mm. I was like, all right, I'm not an epidemiologist. You know what? There needs to be an article that's practical that just explains people all these basic concepts like flattening the curve, which it wasn't around at the time. So at the end of February, I wrote an article that basically said, look, if we're going to get hit. You got to get ready. Things like the case fatality rate are not fixed numbers because if our hospitals are overloaded, more people will die. The best way is to sort of stay away from other people, try to stay home if you can, which means you have to kind of get ready for it. So I, I just like it, it was seen as a prepper doomery thing. Mm -hmm. And I was I and, you know, we'll probably talk about this. It was one of the most striking years of groupthink that I lived through in 2020, like topic after topic. And I, yeah. I thought, you know what? Okay, I, I, we need to have an article so that I can tell people it's not a crazy thing to prepare for what is a regular occurrence in human history. And since this is a virus, we're not going to be able to like pull an antibiotic out of our pocket. We got to get ready. So I wrote one just to have something to send to the people who were around me, who were like sending their parents, elderly parents on trips and still. And I just wanted to tell the conference organizers, no, you gotta, you, you're not going to be able to hold a conference in May, <laughs> you know, just start planning for it. So I, I wrote one. And to my kind of surprise, uh, it just really went viral because people were looking for that kind of level-headed advice. And I didn't have anything complicated in it. Like if you read it now, it's the kind of stuff you read a million times, you know, it just explains hmm. flattening the curve. Where, where was it? The Atlantic Scientific or the New York Times? American, Scientific American. I owed them a blog post. I mean, hmm. to be honest, nobody else really was interested in it. <laughs> and my editor there just had a, his first grandchild. So I hmm. was like, do you want an article on getting ready? He's like, oh, sure. And then I sent it and I thought like he'd give me some feedback or something, but he had like the cute baby bundle 
that was occupying. We just put it up. <laughs> so there were mm. typos. And I was like, wait, we're supposed to. Anyway, just like, then we fixed a few typos. And it went really, really, like, I saw it shared all over. It had millions of views. It had all this sort of big share. So I got a lot of sort of feedback from people saying, thank you, because I was starting to think I'm crazy. Because, you know, I'm worried about this. I don't know what to do. Nobody's telling me what to do. And I was kind of like, yeah, just you know, get some food, store some, uh, you know, get your prescription medication, just maybe plan for a home office or, you know, maybe your kids won't be able to go to school, just this basic stuff. So I wrote that and I thought, all right, you know, I've done uh, what I need to do. And I thought that would be the first and last thing I kind of wrote because, you know, you don't really expect to be doing this. But what happened there was I needed to sort of send people to a list of things to buy that wasn't crazy. Like just simple mm. stuff, like how do you stay home for a couple of weeks, avoid grocery stores, things like that. And it linked to a site that was more focused on like preppery stuff, which it was fine. <laughs> like the list, the list wasn't bad. So I found- Buy gold. Uh, well, it wasn't that. So that's why, like there wasn't a list. So I was like wading through all the lists and they were like crazy. Yeah, buy gold, do this, do that. And I was like, no, 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 no. So I finally found one that was sensible because I thought I also don't want to like drop my own list. So it was a sensible list, but being quite sensible, it had said, you should also buy some masks. And as I said, like I had bought some January 7th. That's what the infectious disease specialist who'd been through SARS advice. It's mm. kind of straightforward thing. And then I started hearing from health professionals who got mad at me for linking to a list that said buy masks in my piece i'd even said you know they're kind of out of masks don't worry about it but yeah the list was like buy masks if you can find them and then i started this amazing amount of feedback that was mad at me from health professionals who were making claims that masks were harmful mm -hmm. right that it wasn't that there's a shortage because I knew there was a shortage. So I had said there's a shortage and, you know, so you kind of can't worry about it because it is what it is. There's a shortage. But I was being told that I was endangering people by, you know, letting them think that masks were okay, that they weren't harmful. And I was like, well, I, I, I had another like second out-of-body out of month there. I'm like, what are we talking about? Like, how are they harmful? Like, I thought maybe there's some weird trick i don't know about all this like maybe there's some you know detailed virology about something something about masks and harm that everybody in hong kong and japan and taiwan missed and uh i said okay you know let me see like what are you telling me like i want to understand what you guys are saying so it was really startling it was i was told and this was like by health professionals they were like journalists, health journalists writing these articles, doctors making these claims. So this was not some rare fringe claim to make. So they were saying things like that wearing a mask would cause a false sense of security, that people would become very reckless just because they were wearing a mm. mask and do more dangerous things. Now, I may not be a virologist, but I am a sociologist and false sense of security is something that's been researched a lot. And it sounds really clever 
Uh, it's a little Gladwellian, like it's this sort of smart contrarian-y kind of thing. You think you'll be more safe, but you're actually mm. less safe. It's been researched to death. And it's kind of like a second order effect, like you got a safety device and then you're just more reckless. And it's just incredibly hard for a second order effect like that to overcome the benefit of the actual safety, the first order effect. And in fact, right. in the research, you don't see it. You don't see it for things like helmets. You don't see it for... Seatbelts, yeah. Yeah, seatbelts. I mean, it's plausible. There's the occasional person who is more reckless, but like maybe I, I saw like one little study among alpine skiers, but even there, like the benefit of the helmet was so great that it just didn't overwhelm if to the degree you can find examples. And plus, you know, from the sociology of it, I knew that people who wore the masks would actually almost certainly be more careful because you're just, it's a sign something's wrong. So instead of being reckless, you would expect them to be more careful and more cautious, like rather than being reckless. And also uh, you would see there was this, this a lot of evidence then that we were having pre-symptomatic transmission, that people without uh, symptoms were transmitting. And the World Health Organization and the CDC were then saying that people should wear a mask if they are sick. And again, sociologically speaking, there is no way for only the sick to wear masks because of the stigma. And we knew this from tuberculosis research, like tuberculosis is also airborne and people are supposed to wear masks, but they can't wear masks only if they're sick, because that's kind of singling you out mm. as sick. And this is at a time where like Asian Americans who wore masks were being attacked and there's just no way. So if you do believe sick people are supposed to wear masks, you have to say everybody's got to wear masks. Plus, right. We know there's pre-symptomatic transmission, so people who don't know they're sick are transmitting. So you got to say everybody's got to wear masks. So well, that, also, like, that's a more importantly, you can't bemoan the lack of PPE for health professionals based on the argument that masks don't work, right? I mean, yeah, that was another thing. So that was a whole other thing. So that part didn't work. So I was like, no, this article, this argument doesn't make. So the second argument they made, which is when I lost it. I thought with the sociological part, I thought, all right, you know what? Doctors don't know a lot of sociology. They have a lot of assumptions about people. Like they're just wrong. So I was kind of like thinking they were like, we can just correct this misunderstanding, right? I was thinking that they're just missing this false sense of security. This contrarian thing is alluring them intellectually and we'll just correct this. The other thing they told me was that what if you touch the outside of your mask? And I was at that point, like, as opposed to touching your face <laughs> without a mask, mm -hmm. like, what are we talking about? And so what was happening was they were looking at studies of healthcare people self-infecting because of improper mask use, but that is compared to less self-infection because of proper use. Like, there's no comparison to not wearing right. a yeah. mask, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if I'm going to touch my face or if like if they would say stuff like what if the outside of your mask is contaminated and you touch it i'm kind of like if the outside of my mask is contaminated that's a win like yeah. there's just no way you can make me buy this this is so and, and if you're touching your mask 
you're not touching the mucous membranes that are beneath your mask. Correct. And if the outside of your mask is getting infected, that means you're not breathing that thing in. Right. Right. right? And plus, there was a lot of... So the, at that point, I thought, this is crazy. There's something else going on here. And further, of course, as the... Uh, I started like looking at the... My for, for like getting in touch with my friends in Hong Kong, getting in touch with infectious disease specialists there. And what I also learned was that for them, masks were really being used to stop transmission to others, not just like protecting the wearer, which is like a medical thing, which is kind of higher standard. It's kind of a little harder to mm -hmm. keep something out, but it is easier just with a cloth mask even to sort of, it's respiratory etiquette, right? That's why you sneeze into your elbow rather than just sort of spread it around. So that was really straightforward. And I got this really strong sense. There was a lot of these threads on social media from really well-meaning doctors saying, well, you can't really wear them right because, you know, they need to be blah, 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 blah. And there's all this talk about the shortages, but people were being told there's a shortage, it's harmful you'll increase your risk. Like there were like these thousands of thousands of retweets. And I kind of got the sense that it was a combination of not being logical with the outside of your mask, not being up with the infectious disease specialists who knew what they were doing, the ones in Japan and Hong Kong and Taiwan who'd been through this. Mm. And partly it was not trusting the public, right? There was this fear of having a run on masks, which that was legit, like you had a shortage, but then you just have to level with the public and say, it sucks, we have a shortage and here's what we got to do. We're going to do, you know, cloth masks as a stopgap. You just have to kind of, you can't tell people. And I thought this is going to start biting us because we're eventually going to have to tell people that we need to wear masks. So I started tweeting about this. I basically tweeted out the whole argument saying, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This part is illogical. False sense of security is baseless. It's not, there's no plausible way it can be harmful to wear one as opposed to not wearing any at all. So I made all these arguments and I said, this is going to like this kind of messaging against masks is going to come back and bite us badly in a couple of months. And I waited because what I was hoping was that I started like just putting the whole argument there, I think early March. I was waiting for somebody else with the right PhD or the right MD or infectious mm. disease sort of specialization to write a piece saying, would the Western nations, you know, US and Europe, please come to their senses and like look at all the expertise and like the, the, the idea that the Japanese are just superstitious to Hong Kong infectious disease experts are just superstitious it was so stupid. So I, I just waited. Because I do already have a platform on Twitter. People already see it. And I'm kind of like, look, here, here's the whole argument. And I hope somebody writes this. I didn't say that, but I was really like genuinely thinking somebody with the gravitas to make this argument needs to make this argument because you're essentially saying the CDC and the World Health Organization need to change their guidelines. Mm. And then I waited two weeks. <laughs> With not, I start. I, I'm still seeing like articles go viral saying, "Don't wear a mask." It'll, you know, you'll increase your chance of infection. And these things are being published in, you know, from traditional mainstream health journalists. It wasn't like they were quoting doctors and they were quoting CDC guidelines saying it's actually bad for you. <laughs> so after waiting two weeks for anyone 
uh, with the right gravitas and the sort of standing to make this argument. And I had like this perch at the New York Times. I just went and said, you guys want a piece on this? Like I, I, that we're just, this is not, the, this, this, this messaging is wrong and it doesn't make sense and we should change these guidelines. And I really wasn't sure if I wanted them to publish it because I thought this is crazy. Like I'm, I am on the side of science and CDC and WHO and I'm going to like, I'm pondering writing an op-ed saying that one of the most important recommendations they're making in a pandemic is wrong. So it's not the kind of thing I thought I wanted to do, but, you know, nobody else was doing it and it is a pandemic. So I thought, all right, you know, caution to the wind. Uh, And partly it's not just caution. I really wanted someone who would be more believable than me, right? Because I don't have the correct yeah. credential set. I wanted it to come from someone like a, the ex-head of CDC or something like that to come and say, look, we got a mask up. There's a shortage. We'll do cloth masks for now. False sense of security doesn't make sense, but of course don't be reckless. And, you know, don't forget to wash your hands in distance. And that's it. Like, it's not very complicated. So I, I, it just wasn't happening. So I said, all right, you know what? It's a pandemic. Uh, if nobody else is doing it, I might as well do it because why not? It'll, it'll go where it goes. And I, it just came out pretty much as I said it. Like if you read back now, it's so straightforward. Like there's no <laughs> big controversy over it. But it, of course, um, and I thought maybe this is the end of my public writing career. You know, I'll, I'll be seen like an anti-vaxxer because, mm. you know, CDC is saying it might be harmful or health journals are writing articles like that. And I'm coming out and saying, you know, World Health Organization, our CDC wrong in a pandemic. So that's kind of a big deal. And I thought, all right, maybe that's the end of my public writing career. But like, if you really believe something is true and the stakes are so high and you have a chance to publish, you know, and what is still called a paper or record, so it'll be read, like you got to do it. So I was like, all right, I do it. I, I, wrote, I wrote it. Uh, and I had a great editor who just kind of let me write it the way I wanted to write it. Like we didn't do the hemming and hawing. I was able to like link to things like pre-symptomatic transmissions occurring and, th- you know, just sort of these things that were still being treated like controversial as late as March when, in fact, there was so much data that was showing that that's the preponderance of evidence, right? Even if you're not 100% certain, so clear that it's almost certainly that's what's happening. So I was able to write it the way I wanted to write it, just saying this is what we should be doing. And then I thought, all right, okay, let's see what happens. You know, maybe, as I said, my career <laughs> is over or maybe not, but you know, if it is, it is. So then what happened was sociologically fascinating to me is that I got inundated with medical professionals and other infectious disease people who contacted me and said, thank you. Thank you for writing this. Thank you for saying this. I later learned that it caused a firestorm within the CDC too and like Mm. helped tip their uh, recommendations too, you know, recommending masks. So there there was this, so instead of getting canceled, which I thought, you know, maybe that's what's going to happen. I got all these people like immediately sort of this flood of, thank you for saying this. Thank you for saying this. And part of me was like, you're very welcome. 
And the other part of me was like, why didn't you write this? Yeah. Like all these people who were really highly sort of placed that it, it made me feel good because I, I don't want to sort of stick my neck out if it's wrong, right? I don't mind the pushback, but if it was wrong, I wouldn't want to endanger people. So the, my first thought was like, great, I didn't do something wrong. I didn't put people in danger. I did say the right things. My second thought was like, wait, if you all knew this, like, yeah. or if you all suspected this, why was it, you know, <laughs> like a sociology professor to be writing this? A full that part is genuinely strange. And we should step back for a second and acknowledge that this problem is much bigger than the pandemic. I, mean, I, I want us to discuss whatever is useful to discuss at this moment about COVID, but there's much more to this moment than that. I mean, we have, it seems like we've been living through a dress rehearsal for something far worse on, on at least two fronts. I mean, there's, there's the global health front, and, and so we have a pandemic here, which just by sheer accident isn't 10 times worse than it is, right? I mean, you know, COVID could be killing 10% of people, and we, would, we, we now know how we would perform under those conditions, and it would be, you know, to watch our society unravel. I would love your take on why we have failed so catastrophically to, to actually get a handle on what is compared to the, the real possibilities out there, you know, both man-made and, and natural, a fairly benign disease, right? So there's the global health challenge that we have not exactly risen to, but then there's this the, riding alongside it or on top of it or beneath it, there is the political instability that we've lived through and the rise of Trumpism and that you know, complete derangement of our politics, which you, you also have weighed in on quite usefully. And many of your intuitions here have been informed by your experience being Turkish and, and knowing what it's like to live through coups and coup attempts and so you've, you've seen the writing on the wall in, in that sense, too. And so the bigger problem is one of misinformation and information siloing. And just the fact that there's, given that we're largely, this is a story of what the internet is doing to the human mind. I mean, we, we have access to so much information, but simultaneously we have, that the gatekeepers of information have... Um, lost the trust of you know, much of society, in, in many cases for good reason. I mean, you, you just pointed to the case where it took you, a, a non-expert, to push back against you know, CDC guidance. And so you, you know, we find out we can't trust the CDC to, on a so basic a point as whether or not people should be wearing masks in the middle of a, an airborne pandemic. So trust in, in public institutions has eroded. And so now we're in, left with a situation where everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket with access to the totality of human information, which is probably doubling at this point, I don't know, every year. And we have this kind of stalemate where, you know, one person's groupthink is another person's expert consensus. There's no place to stand where you have authority or perceived authority to rectify the obvious reasoning errors of vast segments of our population. Take your pick. We could talk about QAnon or 
and the anti-vax movement or prominent people in our society likening COVID to the flu or the craziness is everywhere. And it's very hard when you have a breakdown of, of authority and even integrity in, in major institutions, whether it's the CDC or scientific journals like Nature and Science and the New England Journal of Medicine. I mean, it's just all of this has gotten so contaminated by politics on both the left and the right that it is really quite deranging. So I, I, mean, I, I think we should step back for a second and talk about the role that misinformation and social media and, and any other you know, variable here bringing this confusion to scale is playing on multiple fronts here. Then we can sort of dive back into anything that you think is useful to say about COVID at this moment. Sure. So, um, so you hit upon like, that's exactly what we mean when everything I've been interested in kind of came to be at this year. So to begin with, I, I, I'm on the record calling this a starter pandemic. That's not to like make light of the existing tragedy, but like it could have had the fatality rate of something much worse. Right. And, uh, there's no reason that it couldn't have been terrible in ways that that we can't even imagine right now it could have been killing a lot more people it is mercifully largely sparing children from severe illness or deaths mm -hmm. the outcomes are like so it could have been just sort of devastating all the children and uh, i mean every death is tragic but it could have been in something like that is a different kind of situation uh it could have been killing 30 percent of the victims we might not have had vaccines in nine months. There's so many things that could be so much worse about this, you know, the starter pandemic we have. Uh, and I mean, this part, it's already tragic, but so that's something that I think about a lot. And the other thing is, I mean, then this is something I think about all the time is that, you know, yes, I've criticized the CDC and the World Health Organization on this basic point. But on the other hand, of course, like overall, they are right. Like if you are just sort of thinking about like, who do I believe? You're always going to choose the CDC. You're always going to choose the World Health Organization compared to the, you know, rampant misinformation out there. So even if they have hiccups and get something wrong, they're like, you know, they're full of actual experts and, you know, they're did whatever their failings, they're so much better. And look at like the vaccines and the scientific edifice that can deliver this kind of vaccine with this speed, and yet, and yet, we're losing the argument to QAnon, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we have all this, like, I, I was just sort of talking, I think, in another interview, and I'm just kind of, like, amazed at how little we're doing with what we have, because we haven't figured out how to make these institutions earn public trust the right way, like, because all the, you know, mistakes they make and the sort of communication errors kind of weaken them. But in reality, I'm just thinking like, you know, clinical medicine has all sorts of things I can criticize about everything from the equity to the way they listen to the, they don't listen to the patients to they are still in a mind-body dualism. As far as like, I'm concerned, they have these. So I have all these criticisms. On the other hand, if my 11-year-old gets strep throat, the only thing I'm thinking, well, not this year, but previously would have been, oh, he can't go to school for a day. Whereas like just, you know, if it was 1930s, I'd be thinking, am I planning a funeral, mm. right? Like within 
basically couple of generations, we've made so much amazing progress. And as you point out, we have supercomputers in our pockets and all of that. And yet we're failing and we're losing the argument to <laughs> like people we should not be losing these arguments to because we're mismanaging it. We're losing trust. You know, people like Donald Trump are managing to convince enough people and get elected and then also manage to convince enough people that the election was stolen from them and, you know, all the things that came from that lie. We're like, I, I met a, um, I, I volunteer at a vaccine clinic and the, it's amazing. Like we're giving all these elderly people the, the first shots, but there's no phone capacity to call them for reminders in three to four weeks because the phones are overloaded and over, you know, they're just no. And I, and some of these people were, they're just, we're just sending them on with a piece of paper, uh, you know, 80 year old, 90 year old people and just hoping they show back up. And I'm thinking, how could this be? Like, how could we have these amazing vaccines with these results and not have the phone capacity to make sure that we give them a call back to remind them, you know, mm. your appointments tomorrow, right? That kind of simple stuff. So this is this really weird age, this mismatch age. Like yeah. Achievements of science are on the one hand amazing. Like we got the vaccine so fast, but we're not putting money into distribution. We have medicine that's amazing, but it doesn't listen to patients all the time and loses trust. We have, you know, a democracy and we're electing Donald Trump. <laughs> And then nobody's standing up. So I, I'm not like, it's a transition. And even though the technology that's fueling this, the social media technology is kind of amazing in some ways. And this is something like, this was our last conversation. I long thought about this. The printing press was amazing, but we didn't just get the printing press and then, and then uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, no, it's like, like there was there was like uh, there was a a couple of you know the Thirty Year Wars and this and that, and then two global wars in World War One and World War Two and near annihilation. And we came to our senses a little late on that. On the other hand, like I'm sort of gonna go from like it didn't just yeah go from printing press to Encyclopedia Britannica. It was a lot of upheaval. But on the other, other hand, like after 1945, after World War II, if you wanted to sort of, if you're taking bets, you'd be like in 20 years, Germany is going to attack somebody again, probably France, because that, had, that was pretty much what had happened for hundreds of years. But for a bunch of complicated, lengthy reasons, Europe was scared enough and U.S. was scared enough to build institutions to make sure that never happened. And in 20, 30 years, instead of having, you know, one more Germany attacks France story, which is like, if you were a Bayesian, that's what you would have said was mm -hmm. about to happen again. We got, you know, a single currency there as soon thereafter, we got borderless travel. I mean, I'm not saying the European Union is the perfect, but we haven't had a, another Germany-France war. Like the continent is not in pieces again. So it's like, we can fix things when and if we fix the institutional part of it. Part of the problem here, though, is that because there's been such a breakdown in trust in institutions, many people doubt whether we need institutions. Institutions themselves are in disrepute. And I mean, even 
I mean, you and I are visibly part of this trend. I mean, I, I mean you probably less so than, than I am, but you know, I'm, you, know, you and I are speaking on my podcast, which I have taken great pains to divorce from any kind of institutional pressure because of the kind of intellectual freedom I want to have here. You know, I, I, I have actually consciously worked now for years to make myself uncancelable. And, you know, you, you write for The Atlantic and The New York Times, but you also have a Substack email, which I, I certainly recommend people subscribe to. You're part of a trend there that many very celebrated journalists have jumped entirely to Substack because the institutions have proved to be so vulnerable to, bizarrely so, I mean, it's, it's, this shouldn't be the case, but, you know, you can get something with a few hundred retweets on Twitter, which brings the New York Times to its knees, at least, you know, behind closed doors, they're treating it like it's a, an absolute emergency and looking for who to fire next. And so standing outside of all this, you know, we have obviously the people who are, have been taken in by one or another crazy confabulation like QAnon and, you know, the larger subset of Trumpist preoccupation around that. But on the far left, there are analogs of this and if there's a consensus about anything right now, it seems to be that the experts can't be trusted to the point where expertise itself isn't even a thing anymore, right? It's like, we don't, we don't need experts for anything. They've all discredited themselves. The people most worth listening to are simply the people who will, will say the most provocative thing that proves to be most shareable. And, you know, unhelpfully for any kind of course correction back to normalcy here, we have one vivid example after the next of people like yourself, and you know, and there are many other people I could name in this mode, who obviously have one foot in institutions and kind of the normal culture of expertise, or even both feet there, but occasionally have to step outside of all of that and point out right. that the institutions, you know, our, our most prestigious institutions, are failing to a degree that is actually just jaw-dropping, right? And, and this is, I mean, well, I'll, I'll just add, add to you, I'll, I'll just add to you one, one other data point here on the kind of the, the other side of this, which is, I'm sure you saw this at one point, I forget what month this landed in, but when we were having all of the, the social protests around the murder of George Floyd and the, the BLM protests that in certain cases devolved into riots and, and all, all of that happening on the left, you know, there were open letters signed by literally thousands of doctors and public health professionals in support of these protests as though they posed absolutely no epidemiological concern, right? Like, this is necessary, this is good. All of the right-wing protests against lockdown were murderously irresponsible, right? They had castigated the right over, you know, gathering en masse in public. But then we had protests from the left that were aligned with, you know, the political priors of, you know, most people in, in journalism and most people in, in academia, which were an order of magnitude larger. And from a, you know, apart from, you know, some more mask wearing, definitely looked riskier than anything that was happening on the right. And yet there was not only silence around this, there was absolute support from public health people. And, you know, obviously this got noticed by everyone right of center as not just an instance of black comedy level hypocrisy, but it was just a complete breakdown of a commitment to 
spreading valid public health information, which and so people, you know, the people who were who were who were resisting wearing masks at that point took notice and said, "All right, we can't trust anything you people say. It's all about politics. You've just proved that yet again." And it's you can almost hold your breath until the next moment where the worst fears and the most cynical assumptions of any one of these siloed groups of confabulists get confirmed by our institutions at this point. I mean, the most responsible people behave absolutely irresponsibly, seemingly on command. It's very hard to find a place from which to reboot and to to acknowledge all of these past missteps and to say, okay, now we're going to move forward with you know professionals in their right seats and with a you know renewed commitment to institutional integrity and intellectual honesty and everything else that's going to become a reliable engine of progress here. It's amazing to see. I literally I see billionaires who are as basically as cynical about anything ever getting done ever again as QAnon lunatics. So it's it's just a it's a very dark picture of you know, uh, if we have a consensus about anything, it's that nobody knows how to move forward here. So anyway, I just vomited all of my uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> worries on you and uh, no, do with that what you the will. The interesting thing is that the experts are the ones that are kneecapping themselves despite, I mean, every argument should be on their side. Like as we just discussed, it's like medicine has done amazing things. These vaccines are amazing. We know mm. like certain guidelines. So, so you do like being able to lose trust, even when you have so much on your side. Again, I think it's really got to pay attention to the institution side. Like how do you make things work and how do you fight for trust and not just assume like we got science on our side, listen to science, something like that, because like, one, that doesn't work. You have to sort of earn that. And two, well, everybody's got, like, you can find anybody with the right credentials saying anything. Yeah. You know, MDs and Nobel laureates spouting nonsense about the pandemic. There's like, so whatever you believe, there is a person with the right credential saying it. So just follow the science doesn't tell people which one, right? Like, mm. who's the right person? That's why you need, like, the CDC and the World Health Organization to be above board, like impeccable, because any weakness they display then gets kind of like what you're saying, it gets weaponized against them. And then they also don't help the situation either. It becomes this feedback cycle that just, you know, we don't trust them, they don't trust us. And then like misinformers, grifters Mm. and other people kind of step into that. And then it gets even worse. And then we're trying to explain to people, no, wait. And then of course, as you point out, Things like the protests. Um, I mean, personally, I thought most outdoor things were fine, but then you have to say this equally, right? Like the yeah. outdoor thing doesn't care if you hold the good views or the bad views. I mean, I thought like beaches and parks were like the shaming of them were terrible. Yeah. But if you're going to shame them, yeah, you got to also talk about the protests because if anything, the beaches were safer than the protests. Like personally, I thought like all beaches were fine. Outdoor protests, like unless you were really getting in people's faces, are probably fine. But equally, you know, that's the important thing. You can't just like one kind and not the other. You can't have like a a whole summer of newspapers running articles shaming people for just being at the beach 
a uh, hundred yards from people mm. often, you know, a breezy big beach and there's not a single confirmed case there. And then yes, you know, not talk about protests, which, you know, if that is terrible, that is a hundred times more terrible. Or if they're not terrible, they're kind of equally not terrible. So there's a lot of that going on. But we're going to go back to the same question in that it's not enough to be mostly right, right? You cannot say, you know what, we're kind of right all the time, whatever else you want to say. Because if people don't believe you, it doesn't matter if you're right most of the time. I mean, I actually have great respect for expertise. As you say, I've occasionally stepped out and said, you know what, this consensus or this is more group thinky than sort of correct. But in reality, I'm just sort of thinking back about last year, all the things I wrote, like I wrote about ventilation and aerosol transmission and airborne disease before it was CDC guidelines in July, I think. Yeah. I wrote about the super spreading. I wrote about the masks in March. I wrote about sort of let the outdoors be starting in April. And a good chunk of those is basically me explaining what I've learned from the Japanese and Taiwan's and Hong Kong's infectious disease specialists. So it's not like I'm making up stuff, right? Mm. I'm actually really respecting the expertise of people who are in the thick of it and who are kind of clearly up on the evidence. Like if you look at Japan's epidemiologists, by February, they had pre-symptomatic transmission, clustering, super spreading, airborne transmission, and everything completely nailed in their documents. They like had everything because they were observing what was in front of them. They had previous experience from SARS. They were really fast and they were like working collaboratively and they did, you know, Hong Kong too, there's a lot of real expertise. So I think there's something wrong in the way the whole Western scientific medical establishment has responded to this. And I would love to blame just Trump because that would make me feel better, especially mm. since he's gone. But I look at Europe and I'm thinking it's not just Trump, right? There's some sort of malaise that I don't really put my finger on intellectually, but there's a way in which we're not really thinking straight in UK, Europe, you know, the mm. sort of, my, these are my worlds. And sometimes when I say this, people tell me stuff like, well, they're obedient over there. And I'm kind of like, I spent 2019 watching the young people of Hong Kong learn how to make Molotov cocktails. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I spent like, I've been uh, like, you know, 20 feet from them throwing Molotov cocktails and, you know, risking everything because they wanted freedom against yeah, China. Not the first right? sign so, of obedience. Yeah, like don't in South Korea is a country that has overthrown a government like for corruption through their own street rebellion. So the idea that they're obedient and we're kind of individuals and we're I'm like are you kidding? We're the ones that were hurting in our thinking. We're the ones that suffered from groupthink. We're like the idea that that they just kind of got things wrong because I'm sorry, they're, they're obedient and therefore they can do things we can't do. That, yeah, again, if it wasn't my research, <laughs> yeah, if I hadn't spent, you know, 2019 in Hong Kong watching their whole generation get their heads bashed in, 
because they were brave enough to stand up to China because they wanted freedom. I'd maybe buy it, but I'm not buying it. I was there. And then people say stuff like, well, you know, it's an island. And I'm like, yes, and New Zealand is what? <laughs> you know, I, I'm sorry. They, they say like New Zealand's an island, you know, Australia's mm. an island. They could do that. Like when you point at Western countries. And of course, United Kingdom is, you know, it's, it, I guess it's a sparkling landmass rather mm. than an island, but it's not. So all the excuses we're making for ourselves, they don't really hold up. So we, it's not that we don't have experts. It's not that we don't have science. It's like, you know, we have, as you can see with the um, vaccines, we have amazing science. I know lots of epidemiologists now and virologists and, you know, immunologists, and there's like excellent expertise there. I would absolutely trust them. But somehow it's not coming together to create the institutional setup that works. And that happens historically in what you'd call elite failure when there's really no reason for a civilization to go down. Like they're not hitting, say, an environmental catastrophe per se or something like that. But the elites become detached and stupid and almost self-destructive. And they take their whole country down with them or their whole civilization. So this kind of happens, this kind of dysfunctionality that's not necessarily some external crisis. Barbara Tuchman has a march of folly, mm -hmm. uh, which is like this amazing <laughs> story of one, you know, one after another. So I think back about it and I kind of am like, yeah, we've got all this stuff, but we have this disconnect between, you know, the elite lives, if you want to call them, the, the very wealthy and this and that. And um, we just kind of diverge from they don't really care. They're not really very attached to what happens to the places that have made them so powerful, but they're going to take themselves down as well, because if things don't run, eventually they don't run for everyone. So that's, and I'm just sort of like thinking, how can we be in such a wealthy country with so much, you know, expertise and institutions and resources? And I'm like watching, you know, little old ladies get vaccinated and I know nobody's going to call them to remind about yeah. the booster. Like, I'm, I'm just kind of flabbergasted that, you know, this is what's missing. Like, I'm just wondering, like, should I just collect their phone numbers and call them myself? Would I be violating privacy? Well, should, I mean, it's like ridiculous to just sort of look at the situation and think, how could we doing it like this when, you know, we're the United States. We're very, very wealthy. <laughs> but here we are. There's so many weird juxtapositions here. Right? One was just our inability to produce PPE when we recognized that we desperately needed it. And, you know, I, like you, had, had bought some masks early, you know, being slightly earlier. I wasn't as early as you, but, I, but slightly earlier than, than the culture to worry about the pandemic. I just, I, you know, I jumped online and bought some N95 masks and, and then in short order, felt guilty about it when everyone was shrieking that doctors, you know, were, were having to make their own masks. So, you know, I mean, literally, I'm, I'm now giving my, my N95 masks to local doctors who I, I knew would need them. But, I mean, to juxtapose that with the wealth and technical competence of our society, that we can't even get our hands on masks when we need them. And when we attempt to do it, in some way, we wound up creating a, 
a crazy market which drives up the cost and you have states bidding against other states and it just it interacts with our political dysfunction. And then alongside that, we're surrounded by people who are swimming in the same waters of wealth and, and previous, you know, competence who are saying that, that you know, this is all a, a hoax. This is a manufactured crisis, all designed to destroy the economy so that we can unseat Trump, right? I mean, it's just a malicious, self-inflicted wound for purely political purposes. I think we should tease out some kind of general elements to this that are are worth never forgetting. I mean, there's, there's one thing you brought up a few minutes ago, which I wanted to flag, which is the, the you know, like, what is the antidote to a scientific error? It's not something other than science, right? I mean, science, one of science's jobs is to notice when scientists themselves get something wrong. And even in, in the worst case, to detect scientific fraud, right? There is such a thing as scientific fraud. And really, only scientists are in a position to notice that and correct for it with better science, honest science, further science. And so it is with honest error in science. And, and so when, you know, when the CDC gets something wrong, or you know, any other scientific institution does, the antidote shouldn't be coming from some other part of culture. It should be the scientific process itself surfacing those errors and correcting for them. So the idea that scientific mistakes are a knock against science itself is, is actually a false meme. Obviously, much of what we think is true scientifically, or what is you know, currently in good standing among scientists, is very likely wrong. And only further scientific conversation and experiment will discover that. And so, I mean, that is how science proceeds. And yet, the public perceives it very differently. And the public perceives every scientific caveat or statement of scientific uncertainty very differently. All of it is perceived as a kind of failing, which opens the door to other ways of knowing or other sources of, of valid opinion on topics as fundamental to a scientific picture of reality as virology and epidemiology, and hence, you know, the anti-vax movement and everything else that, that we have to contend with now. But the, I mean, the other element here is that there's, there's a kind of asymmetric war of information happening that I'm not sure what the antidote to it is, but it's, we certainly have to keep it in view, which is witnessed in all of these examples where an error on the part of an institution like the CDC or the New York Times really counts against it in a way that is quite devastating, you know, and can be spun up into a controversy of a sort that, you know, it's, there's really something to recover from. And yet, an error coming from the mouth of someone like President Trump, or from Fox News, or from Breitbart, or from some one of the other sources of information and, and misinformation, never counts at all. Right. I mean, there's just like the rules of the rules of reputation management are completely different. Right. There is no problem for Fox when Fox makes an error. And there's no there's certainly no problem when in Trumpistan, when Trump tells a lie or makes a, a mistake, because literally there are tens of thousands of examples of that. Perhaps a better comparison here politically is look at what happens to someone like Gavin Newsom when he's caught at French Laundry being a hypocrite. That is a, an absolute political emergency for him, and it, and it forces him to give this abject apology on Facebook or wherever he did it, and it looks desperate, it is desperate, he's in free fall for a single glitch. 
arguably an embarrassing one, but you know, he tells people to stay home and then he's caught at French Laundry without a mask. There are literally 10,000 examples of things every bit as scandalous as that in Trump's biography, and it means absolutely nothing for the people who support him, uh, which is half the country. So there is an asymmetry here that is really unhelpful because it's just it's very hard to acknowledge error without it seeming to level the playing field and erode any distinction between a genuine organ of information like the CDC or the New York Times and Fox News or you know your your uncle who's into QAnon who's shopping for horns to wear for the next insurrection. So I mean this is the very I think you're right at the heart of the problem is that it's easy to take something down. It's harder to defend what you've built. And these organizations are not built to defend, right? Because when there's a mistake like that or there's something they're late with, they don't do what's necessary, I think, to sort of fight for that trust. They just kind of move on. They update the recommendations, but they don't go and then fight for getting people to understand, even if there was a mistake, like even if it wasn't just more evidence, they were just kind of slow and they kind of took their time or whatever. They don't go fighting to earn that trust in the public sphere as if this wasn't an unequal game. This is why I really don't like the slogan, like trust the science, trust the scientists or something, or follow the science. Because mm. I think like not that I'm on the side of the science. And as you say, like science is the process by which you get at these things and you think about it and you know, sort of the whole empirical process. There might be, I might have issues with the way science is done here and there. And I'm an like, academic. I don't like the way null hypothesis is very dominant in publishing or stuff like that. But those are not the major problems, right? But what that thing, let me put it this way, like we're treating the world as if we have a captive audience whose trust we can take for granted rather than figuring out how do we bat for that trust in the right way, which means like being out there. And if there's a mistake, you have to acknowledge it and go for accountability. And when there's a success, you have to shout it from the rooftops. Something that's been driving me batty recently is and this is like, this is a sort of a orientation towards the public problem. Uh, when we got like the vaccines finally, there's been a zillion articles in media telling people they can't take their masks off after the vaccine and um, they should do this and they should do that and blah, 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 on and on and on. Now, on the one hand, that is not incorrect in the sense that in public, especially for a while, that's what makes sense. Even if the vaccine was like 100% on everything in public, you don't really want to create two classes of people. But eventually, there's clearly going to be some relaxed guidelines for what two vaccinated people can do in private. And all of that is going to come. But it's not like people have even had their second dose in two weeks out. So there's not even like some emergency. But they're treating the public like they're about to turn into a reckless mob. and you know, throw caution to the wind. It's like a redux of the false sense of security thing. I even saw a headline saying once you're vaccinated, you can't like parties like 1999. And I just was like flabbergasted because way to lose trust when you have in nine months, 
vaccines with 95% efficacy against any disease. Pretty much 100% efficacy from severe disease. In the Moderna and Pfizer trials, uh, you have like one severe case combined out of the 60,000, and she just had mm-hmm. a 93 oxygen saturation. That said, she didn't like even need medical care. Mm. You should be ringing church bells if that's what you yeah. do, or fireworks. Like instead, we're scolding people as if they're going to become irresponsible. So I think like there's this incorrect orientation. I mean, in fact, I think people are just going to continue to be cautious. The people we've lost with the masking, they already don't trust you. So more scolding isn't going to get anybody else to mask up, right? These people are not children. We can't just sort of scold and punish them. We lost that trust and you're not going to get that back with more scolding. The people who are already cautious and masking up, they're not going to be reckless. You don't need a hundred articles telling them vaccines aren't perfect. (laughs) What we need to do is celebrate. What an amazing achievement this is. I mean, I I just, in May of 2020, when Fauci, Dr. Fauci suggested maybe we could get vaccines in about 18 months, that would be like next September. People thought, you're crazy. This is too optimistic. And when the FDA said, you know, 50% efficacy is good enough, you know, we got 95%. So you see what I'm saying? Like, even when something wins, this kind of scoldy, incorrect approach to the public, where we treat them like children, where we don't act like we trust them, and they don't trust us back. And then whenever there's an opening, like that mistrust already existing, whenever there's a genuine mistake, the people who already don't trust these institutions go like, oh, see, you know, this is the asymmetry you're talking about. So like, there's not like a proper relationship from even the institutions that have science on their side to the public. Like they did the, the way we're acting is as if, you know, it's a classroom that we rule, that we just, you know, they just have to listen to us rather than how do we celebrate our wins? How do we explain what amazing things we have on our side? And when we make a mistake, we go honestly and say, yeah, we made a mistake and here's the correction and this is what happened. That's how you earn trust. Mm. If you're not doing that, and then you become victim to what you just described, which is that you've got all these people who are already kind of lost trust. They don't understand what an amazing sort of achievement that's all around them and go around scoffing it. And then, of course, but, but, it's all down. But, Zainab, there, there's some paradoxes here. I mean, one, we have good reason not to trust a significant percentage of the population to understand or even be interested in the best information we have. I mean, literally, we have half of society, something like half of society, that is quite cavalier about getting the virus. They basically think this is just an overblown flu and a social panic around that. Yet many of those same people, perhaps even most of those same people, are worried about getting vaccinated, right? Because either they think vaccines themselves are dangerous or they think there's some plot engineered by Bill Gates to put you know, tracking devices in people through, through the vaccine. I mean, it's just we have people who are seriously confused about terrestrial facts, and we've just found it impossible to message appropriately to them. And all of this is being 
complicated by a, a dynamic that you pointed out in this very conversation, where you can, you can always find a PhD or an MD to hold any position. There's, there simply are enough of them. And 1% of any group of people you're going to find is almost certainly schizophrenic, right? So you, have, I mean, you literally have psychotic PhDs and MDs out there who are talking. And then you have ones who are deranged by some other process, you know, bad incentives, or, you know, they're selling some miracle cure, or they have political commitments that have destroyed the erstwhile scientific parts of their brains. So you can literally find a PhD or, or, or MD to say anything. And yet that interacts very unhelpfully with a genuine principle of scientific progress here, which is that it is quite true to say that sometimes the, the lone voice in the wilderness is right. In science, we don't honor scientific authority per se, and we don't honor scientific consensus per se, because it, it is possible. I mean, every single breakthrough we have is an instance where there's a moment where everyone is wrong, and then there's a moment where some new person is right and in some cases in sole possession of the right theory or the right set of facts that overturns a whole paradigm in science. So it is a bit of a paradox, or at least it's hard to communicate adequately. When we trust scientific consensus and scientific authority, when it matters whether somebody has a Nobel Prize or the right pedigree when they're saying something, and when it really doesn't, and when, and when the Nobel laureate is only as good as his or her last sentence, and then the next thing they say is appropriately criticized by you know a freshman taking their class who says, okay, that sounds like bullshit, and the freshman is right. It's very hard to, to parse for people. Uh, let me put something, like, let me push back a little. As someone who sure. did try to sort of be like, okay, the consensus here is wrong, on a couple of things. One, I was also relying on expertise in other places. So I don't think yeah. that was the thing. But like the story of, you know, the Galileo is the rare one. So in most cases, you're not Galileo, right? In most cases, the consensus is right. In most cases, yes. until that's not true. So I, I mean, like, so people like who are smart people, we love the the contrarian version of it where, and sometimes like it's amazing to be like that because it feels good and you're going against the, you know, the windmills and occasionally it's a great story. And I've been there and it's like, I don't regret any of it and I would do it again for sure. But if I were betting, I would bet with the consensus or if I was looking at like, what's the best treatment for myself, I'd go with whatever the consensus is because most of the time that's, what's going to be true. So how do you tell those apart is a really interesting question. And also, how does the consensus move from one to the other, like when they're kind of lagging, and then there's something that corrects and like the best of it, like this, this, um, right before the pandemic, I, um, I did something really stupid. I, I cut my, let's see, two flexor tendons and the ulnar nerve on my mm. yeah index finger, which I oh I think you I think you were yeah. I saw you tweeting about yeah, that where you you opening a box with a paring knife or something yes uh, <laughs> would not do it again sharp new paring knife and it just right. like, it's unclear like I don't even remember it because the angle at which it came in and out of my finger is it must have sprung but it happened and I was about to like 
go back to Hong Kong for my research again. So I went to the emergency room and they're like, oh, you're going to need surgery and you got to come in tomorrow. I said, okay, I went in for surgery and I'm asking them, can I get on a plane on like Wednesday? My surgery's on Monday. And they're like, honey, you don't understand. You're not going anywhere for a while. And I didn't understand. So it turns out flexor tendons are really difficult to heal. Like if you break Mm -hmm. a bone, bones heal. Tendons don't have a lot of vascularization and long story, the hand is a crappy thing. So there's Hmm. these multiple things where you have to keep them. It's a a trade-off between if you move it too much, you will re-tear what's been uh, repaired. But if you don't move it, the scar tissue basically Hmm. immobilizes it. Now, for Hmm. the longest time, they would apparently immobilize it and then you'd lose mobility. So sometime in the 70s, some young upstarts started saying, this is wrong. Like we're stitching up the tendon, but people aren't getting their functional mobility back. We got to get them to start moving. And the old guard said, well, if you do that, they're going to tear that stitch again, and then they're going to lose the whole finger. And then the new ones were like, well, you're not winning either. So they started like sort of doing trials and they started figuring out how to stitch it a little better, but start moving. And like, it's sort of back and forth. And then the trials, which of course kind of are risky, right? Because you're talking about mm. people's hand function, showed, yeah, 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 you've got to do early mobilization. Like people can get their finger function back much better. So the reason I'm telling you all of this is, of course, you know, once I got told you're not going anywhere, that wait, what, what's going on here? Uh, like you stitched it, isn't this? No, they're like, there's going to be this very long arduous therapy process and you got to do this, but not that, and this and that, and very complicated. So, you know, being an academic and being me, I started reading about it because it's not like I have much else to do. I'm, it's a terrible thing. I have to move it every hour. And, mm. and some of the articles I read, like the review articles, were written by the very people who were proven wrong. And the reason they wrote the review article And the reason I was reading the review article, because I just wanted to see sort of the state of the research, was that they were the senior people. So it would say stuff like, you know, author X and author Y had advocated for, you know, immobilization, but later research showed that they were wrong. And here's the thing. And I remember thinking, wait, like, this is the author that's writing this. I just thought this is excellent because this is an excellent example of somebody kind of not being so personally attached to Mm. being right that they can write the perfectly nice little review that is the history of how they were wrong Mm. and how they got overturned. And as the senior person in their field, they were writing this very useful, you know, now here's what we know and here's sort of the kind of thing. And that kind of detachment from your idea, like this kind of marketplace of ideas is an ideal, right? That's the thing that it's both very hard and the incentives aren't there. Like this is kind of, um, hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but in my own Substack, I started like my, one of the reasons I wanted to do my newsletter was to pay people to take me down. <laughs> so I yeah. started this thing, like it was, it, my mind is called insight and the things are called counters because I actually want to go find people who are going to 
like argue against whatever I argued and I'm going to go find the best people I can and I'm going to make it a compensated job so that like mm. I, I have an incentive. Because otherwise, the incentive for me, like as a person, is to create a love fest on my own newsletter, right? Just get my fans and also on social media. And I could just keep dunking on people on social media. You know, I can be the cool kid. And that's how I'll stop being able to think, right? I know. Like, I, yeah. I, I mean, it's not that I don't trust myself. It's just that I don't trust anybody, right? I don't trust anybody to keep their thinking straight, given the academic incentive structure, given the newspaper, acad you know, structure. And sort of I'm going to tie it back to something you said about, like, trying to make yourself uncancelable. So, like, before that was the word, that was something I was thought about. I always had like an extra job that wasn't related to whatever else I was doing. Mm. Like when I became an academic, I was still doing coding and statistics just in case it didn't work out. Like I was outspoken from day one. Like I was very mm. outspoken on day one, but I always think like I don't want to ever think this is the only thing I can do. It's kind of this extra burden, but fine. Like it makes me feel freer. But I, I always think. Like maybe it's the sociology, the incentives really matter. So if we don't let people come out and say, I was wrong about something, if we don't let people apologize, if we don't like, even if they were wrong, or if they, we don't let people say, I learned something, then they're not going to do it. Like if the uh, mm. price for being wrong is being shamed out of whatever, you know, your job or your situation, even if you apologize. And I'm not saying like, I want the lack of complete accountability. Sometimes you see the powerful always failing up. That's not it. Right? Mm. It's something else. And I just haven't, like, we are not creating that structure. It's not there in academia. Like, there's not a great culture of let's take each other down, but not take it personally. Like, even if right. you care about the idea, because I'm opinionated, I care about my idea, so I don't want to be proven wrong but I want to make them better, right? This is kind of this weird mix. And I think that's what, we don't really have that. I don't mean a debate club. Like it's kind of, I've been just sort of thinking about it because a debate club is pointless. It's not just being clever. It's not just being contrarian. It's kind of like having this good faith effort at saying, what am I getting wrong? How do I think this better? How do I fix this? How do I kind of move forward? And it's just everything we have right now is working against that kind of mm. thing. And I and I and again, as I said, I'm such a big believer in incentives. I feel like if you don't set the incentives right, yeah. nobody's above incentives. Like just not a human thing. Like maybe some other people are, but for just the for myself, I, I always think like I have to set the incentives right. Otherwise it'll cloud my brain. Like it's the way, because I criticize tech a lot, but I've been involved a lot and I've sort of got a lot of things, I've been warning them about a lot of things ahead of time. And sometimes people say, well, why don't you like go buy their stock if you know what's going to happen? I'm kind of like, I don't because I, that would screw with my thinking. Like if I mm -hmm. started thinking it was tied to my bank account, I don't care what I think I think, right? I know humans, it's mm -hmm. going to eventually get to you. So I just have these sort of ways to try to protect my own thinking. So the question I think for us as a society is, like, how do we create incentives at the societal level so that we can think better for everyone? Yeah. And um, and I don't have an answer. You know, it's not like something I've solved. I just it's something I think a lot. 
Yeah, no, I feel like I'm very late to appreciate the overwhelming power of incentives to determine almost everything in society. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not an economist, but you know, obviously economists think a lot in terms of incentives. But obviously, there are incentives beyond economics. There's social status. There are many other things that people care about. But yeah, we we want incentives that make it easier and easier for people to be good and ethical and honest, and harder and harder to be sociopaths. And ultimately, we want we want incentives that are so wise that even sociopaths find themselves doing good things because they you know they're incentivized so so overwhelmingly in that direction. Zainab, I realize we're coming up against your hard stop here, but there's there's been so much to talk about, and I, I want you to comment on the recent maneuvers in in big tech and social media to try to write the the ship of information at the the very last minute before it goes over the the falls. So I'm gonna go back to incentives there, though. You know, our last conversation was exactly about this, and my mm-hmm. huge criticism for them from the beginning was that their business model was engagement and attention oriented, right? Mm. So as long as you have a business model in which the longer you keep people on the site, the more money you make and the more data about them you have, the better you can target them, right? If that's the incentive structure, that's just going to go wrong, right? right. And I, I mean, I, I've been saying this since like for 10 years, at least like in my public writing and Again, I get sometimes people are like, you were prescient. I'm kind of like, it's not really prescience. You have to look at the incentives, right? That's where the game is. I don't really have a huge, strong opinion on Mark Zuckerberg's character, to be honest. For all I know, he's a really nice guy. And I don't care much, you know, because that's not what's driving this ship. It's not that the personalities are completely zero. But what's driving that ship is their business model and what the technology allows. And as long as you have engagement as your driver, of course, extreme stuff is going to get more surfaced. Uh, it's not just the algorithm. It's this whole combination of human nature, mm. what people will be drawn to. The best way to keep people on a site is to create and enhance and allow tribalism to rise. And tribalism, I don't mean like some anthropological thing of, you know, actual tribes. I mean, this idea of us versus them. And it's two sides of the same coin, right? It's like belonging to people like you and then shouting at the other team. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's everywhere in human society. It's a very core function of how we are. And it's very engaging. It's very engaging to feel that belonging. It's very engaging to fight with the other group. And that's kind of what they're incentivized to do. And as long as that's the case, that's what their platforms were going to do. And what has happened recently is almost like an end game where people are asking me, was, were they right to take Trump off? And I'm kind of like, by the time you're asking if it's okay for a few corporate executives to deplatform the president. Like you have a lot of things that have gone wrong there, right? Why do you have that president in place to begin with, right? Everything wrong in our society to begin with. Plus, of course, he wouldn't have been president without social media being the way it was and without mm-hmm. the media operating the way it was. So by the time you got to the end of it, 
right? The patient is in a crisis and you're doing some emergency maneuvering. And do I think that particular maneuver is right or wrong is kind of almost besides the point. And also to make things worse, like the way these decisions are made, even if one thinks, okay, this is an emergency, somebody's going to make that decision. The fact that it comes down to how a few men in California or wherever they are now with the pandemic feel that week, that's deeply disturbing. You know, they could have felt some other way. Like it's kind of, I don't feel like it was their decision. I mean, somebody had to make that decision and I probably would have made the same decision if that were me in their shoes. But the idea that it would be how they felt that way, it just really rubs me the wrong way because now we have, you know, he's used those tools and the presidency to convince you know, tens of millions of people that the current president is illegitimate and had stolen the election. Mm -hmm. And now we got that problem to deal with. And we got, you know, 60% of the GOP voting to overturn 66% to voting to throw out, you know, election results right after the mob stormed the Capitol. So we got all these like really, really deep structural problems. And uh, I feel like what we're constantly doing is playing catch up kind of come to an emergency moment and then there's some emergency things done like all right you know pull his facebook page that kind of thing but there's no examination and accountability of how did we get here i saw this i had the same problem with like when they let alex jones become so big Mm. they you know he had a whole run of the platforms he was so big on youtube he was being heavily recommended he went all over the place, and then finally the pushback got very hard, and they cut him off, and then he disappeared. I'm kind of like, this isn't healthy. Like, you let him be, and you promoted him, and you made money from his ascendance, and you amplified him. And then, you know, next day you get up, and you're like, all right, there's too much pushback, and then you pull the plug. This isn't healthy either, because one, in that particular case, again, I agreed with the decision Mm. but like what if they decide somebody who is gonna raise taxes on tech should be deplatformed right i'm like i don't want them to have that kind of power like who died and made mark zuckerberg king but on the other hand it is an emergency somebody needs to make those decisions and yes the president of the united states was a genuine danger to the country on the third hand, this is the man who walks around with the nuclear football and the power to destroy you know, life on Earth for weeks uh, while we don't think he's even safe enough for Facebook. Like, there's some <laughs> right. really bizarre thing going on here. It's kind of cognitive dissonance and realizing the gravity of the situation. And what I'm afraid is that people won't realize that the gravity of the situation is still you know, grave. <laughs> and Also, just sort of kind of bring it back, like there's no earthly reason we can't dig ourselves out of this. Like it's not even like post-World War II where the world was in ruins, right? uh, We're the super wealthy nations, Western Europe, uh, North America, most of the world. There is, you know, problems and tensions and, you know, conflicts here and there, but we're not, you know, caught up in a global war. Our scientific enterprises have 
they're brilliant. Like for all the institutional failures we talk about, there's also brilliance and excellence and all of that. So we have like almost everything in place to fix this, except for the march of folly part, right? We haven't got yeah. the folly part under control and we're like, you know, walking into the quicksand where we have every option, every resource, every kind of thing to say, no, no, we got to stop this. We got to sort of pull ourselves out of this. We're in the position. And that's been very frustrating for me to watch because if it was something else, you know, we got hit by a meteor, like that would suck. But at least that would kind of give us like whoever survived and wrote the book, you know, a couple of millennia later, there would be a nice explanation. I don't mean like nice in a pleasant way, but there'd be an explanation rather than they were just too stupid to realize they yeah. could fix this and they just kind of let it go down like this. That that seems kind of pathetic. That's what's so frustrating about this. Is, I mean, we're in a situation, just to take the microcosm of it, we're in a situation where the vaccine is here, it's on the shelves, and we can't figure out how to get needles in arms quickly enough. And there are reports of hospitals where, you know, 50% of the healthcare workers, you know, presumably not the physicians, but the, the nurses and, and orderlies won't take the vaccine because they are part of the anti-vax world of misinformation. So it's just, it's so much of our, our suffering is, is self-inflicted at this point and obviously unnecessary. And, and that's, that's what's crazy making about it. But Zainab, I, I know I've kept you to, up to the, the very minute of your uh, availability here, and I just I want to thank you for everything you've been doing, and I, I recommend that people, uh, you know, obviously they can follow you on The Atlantic and, and The New York Times, but uh, they should get your Substack. Wait, what's, what's the website for that? It's called Insight, just okay. Zainab, my first name, and you can Zainab at Substack.com. But I want to sort of say, honestly, I lived in Europe, I keep telling people this uh, in the like uh, 90s, and there were still people alive to remember both world wars. Uh, but they could yeah. travel between countries without a passport and like, you know, they had peace and prosperity, but they could still remember all the terrible things. It doesn't take that long to fix things. Like from the ashes of World War II, they built the European Union, you know, whatever yeah. imperfections, it took them two decades to get that kind of stuff. So I, I feel like maybe the pandemic will scare us enough to say, oh, well, we got to sort of whatever it is we're doing that, the, you know, we can't convince some healthcare workers to trust us. Right. Like, I, I always feel like that's on us. Like we have mm. these amazing vaccines. And if we're losing the argument, then we're just doing something wrong. We have to figure out what is it that we're doing wrong because the tool works. Right. So what's going on here? So like, once you decide as a society that we're going to fix this, and I think the first step is to say, what are we doing wrong? How can we like reach out to those people? How can we sort of make this case better? And then build the institutions. And how do we defend institutions? Uh, you know, in the world of social media, you can't, like, I just sort of, I, I am wrapping up, but I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times uh, early December with an immunologist from Harvard, uh, Dr. Mina, and we just said we should trial mm. a single dose. You know, the idea is like boosters can be spaced and we have the sort of high 
efficacy and you just want to know what happens if you delay the booster or what, because that's something that's been done with vaccination shortages. It's not a very controversial thing in the sense that it's common practice. And if you had like two kids, would you give the prime and the booster to one and leave the other one unvaccinated? And, or would you sort of try to figure out, could you give each one or what do you do? Like, let's get a trial. Especially when the first vaccine is getting you to something like 80%. Right. They're, they're valid concerns, right? There's concerns about, you know, immune escape and dosage of waning, especially for older elderly. So it's not like a clear cut thing, but it's very much the kind of thing where you're like, can we get more data on this? Uh, we could trial on younger people. We could follow up people who don't show up with booster anyway and see what happens mm-hmm. to them. Like you don't even have to do a lot. Like you can just sort of see And after we wrote this, there was such brouhaha, like how dare we suggest this, that like the editor-in-chief of science wrote an article defending us saying, you know what, you can't hold scientific discussion behind closed doors anymore. Like if you're going to do this, you got to have these discussions that it's not that world anymore, right? Mm. You know, so he defended us because we got fire for just suggesting a trial. Well, fast forward, Britain decided to postpone the second booster for 12 weeks, and the World Health Organization said six weeks is okay. So it wasn't even like, you know, even after all the brouhaha, it wasn't even that controversial, like that kind of thing happened, but we don't have a trial. So it's almost like the worst of both worlds, like just suggesting a trial, which would put us on sound scientific footing, got the scientific establishment kind of gunning for us because we wrote it in the New York Times and how dare we kind of take these ideas to the public. And then facing an emergency, the authorities are kind of doing it anyway, but without a trial. So if anybody's suspicious of them, now they're going to be even more suspicious. So to me, this is kind of like how you shoot yourself in the foot. Like, so Mm. you treat the idea of getting more data like some hostile act because it's been made as a public debate and then you do things anyway without the data and then because the authorities now said it's okay it's not really discussed the same way anymore right because once it comes from the top it's just sort of like all right now that's the consensus i'm like let's not do it this way you know let's sort of be out there earning trust with data and with efficacy and with sort of results and showing people. So all those people who are not getting vaccinated, once they see the vaccinated people can get back to life much better. That's how you get people on board. Like you deliver something that is, that works. Like you make their life work and Mm. then they can trust you. So that's kind of what I keep thinking is like, maybe we can use this pandemic and do like a like the NTSB, the the, the transportation board does these uh, no blame analyses. The point is not to fire people, but to figure out what happened. I feel like we need to do one of those, not to fire Mm. people and not to like sort of cause social media cancellations of them, but to say, how do we get these things wrong? And what can we do better for that next time, which we started talking about? And I guess that's sort of the kind of both optimistic and not so optimistic place to end because there'll be a next time that we will face more crises. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, Zainab, just keep going. We'll need you next time. We need you now and we need you next time. Oh, thank you. I hope I'm, I, 
I sincerely hope I will be completely irrelevant next time. <laughs> I <laughs> could not be happier not to have a major role in a crisis because yeah. uh, there are people in charge, you know, the way you fly in a plane, the pilot and the FAA and everybody else is doing their job and I don't have to do anything but read a book. Like, I would be very happy if that was the next time. Yeah, I'll see you there. I'll see you on that beach. <laughs>